Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. My name is John Reynolds, a host. Coming up this week, we've got Press Gazette's Dominic Ponsford on the exit of Paul Dacre and the appointment of Geordie Gregg at the Daily Mail. We've got Direct Line Marketing Director Mark Evans on restoring trust in advertising and Steve Martin, Global CEO of MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment on Amazon winning some Premier League football rights. Finally, in a longer interview, we've got Publicist Media UK uh, CEO Sue Frogley talking media agencies, her new role at Publicist Media and much more. Uh, so first up is uh, Dominic Ponsford. Oh, thanks for joining me on the uh, the podcast, Dominic. So obviously big news with um, Paul Dacre standing down as editor of the Daily Mail and being replaced by Geordie Gregg. Uh, first of all, was it, was it a big surprise Paul Dacre actually standing down? I think given his age... <laughs> Okay, and do you think it'll be a, a clean break then? Obviously, Geordie Gregg's got the nod now, but Paul Dacre stays on as uh, he's moved to a new role as chairman and editor-in-chief of Associated Newspapers. So that's obviously the parent company of the, the Mail and the Mail on Sunday. Do you think he'll still have a, a big influence on the editorial stance of the Mail? Sure. Just, I mean, is your role as editor of Press Gazette, presumably you met him on a few occasions, had you, Paul Dacre? I mean, what were your meetings and run-ins with him? I mean, was he helpful, do you think, to uh, more broadly across the newspaper industry? I came across him a few times over the years. He never gave us an interview, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's sort of, you know, in person, um, fairly shy, uh, actually. Um, not, you know... Um, Saw him speak at the Science Editors Conference a few years ago. He gave a sort of barnstorming speech where he talked about you know, press freedom, Max Mosley, and all these things. Um, he's, um, you know, I mean, he's, uh, you know, an enigma really. I mean, you, yeah. you um, obviously uh, in, the, in the office, uh, he's by all accounts, um, you know, very, very different. From very, very, you know, yeah. Uh, Okay, but I mean overall, I mean the the pieces I've read, there's a general consensus that he was the best editor of his generation. Is that fair to say? I mean, if you look at the in terms of the Daily Mail now, and you compare it to the the other Fleet Street papers, in terms of I think it's sixty five p, isn't it? In terms of value for money and the quality of the stories, do you think it is the best paper out there then? Mm. Uh, the cost cutting that's gone on pretty much every other paper. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, 
product. So I, I guess the the fear will be for many now as majority takes over that you know that I'm sure he'll be scrutinising costs, mm. uh, probably looking to do things his own way, bring some of his own people in. So um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of changes on the way. Okay. Uh, last few questions. I mean, some, uh, some people say it's a divisive figure, Paul Dacre. Criti- uh, critics have accused him of uh, the paper being toxic at, at times over its hardline coverage of immigration and divisive coverage of, of trans people. Do you think he did get, um, you know, do you think it did become too hardline and did it alienate maybe some of its readers and advertisers too? I mean, there was that example, wasn't there, of, I think it was Paper Chase pulling uh, promotions from the, from the mail. Uh, do you think it did become a, a, a divisive paper, a paper in some people's minds? Yeah, I think some of the criticism that, that was levelled against it, it was over quite historic stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, some quite old pieces that, that had appeared, which were pretty near the knuckle. Um, I mean, over the years, it has sailed close to the wind, I think. Uh, various sort of, you know, comment pieces and uh, that, that have... Um, I think more of the trouble has been more on the, on the comment side, right. where uh, you know comments have been raised or forthright on certain issues. Um, I think if you look at the the Daily Mail sort of record, it's actually pretty had, had a pretty clean record when it comes to sort of um, IPSO complaints okay. and um, big legals. Um, I'd say uh, you know news wise, he's, he's run a pretty tight ship. I'd say. With high standards um, of accuracy mm. uh, I mean I think the thing that some people felt kind of gone off the reservation a bit was over Brexit mm. and, over, and over some of the news coverage where it did blur the line really between sort of comment and news uh, I think a lot of people felt it went too far particularly if you don't yeah. didn't agree with its stance um I think, um, you know, given the fact that a sizable minority of Daily Mail readers will have been pro-Remain, it did seem a bit of a curious thing to do, to go so uh, out there when Mm. when it came to an issue that's actually so divisive Mm. for the readership. So I don't know with, with hindsight whether that was the, you know, best policy when Mm. when it came to the sort of long-term kind of brand and the long-term sort of standing of the newspaper. And do you think it had had much of a, I mean, I guess it's difficult to quantify what impact it had on the actual vote. I remember uh, before the the last election, there ran a lot of negative stories about Jeremy Corbyn too, didn't they? And that didn't seem to have that much of an effect. I think the Labour's vote went up, you know, by something like 30 seats. But I guess it's difficult to quantify uh, what impact it actually had on the Brexit vote, though, the Daily Mail's coverage, isn't it? Well, I think, given the closeness of the margin, 52-48, I think the fact that the the three sort of market-leading daily newspapers, the Mail, Sun, Daily Telegraph, were so biased their coverage and you know no one would argue I'm sure the editors wouldn't argue that they were biased in their choice of stories mm. uh, and editorials when it came to uh, banging the drum for Brexit mm. I mean the fact that they were so forthright in their coverage you know it's you'll, you'll, we'll never know will we what effect that 
you, mm. you think it's there's a good chance that it could have had a, could have had a reasonable effect or enough of an effect to have, to have had some sort of decisive impact on the on the um, on the vote outcome. And it's not just the you know the coverage in the papers themselves; it's the sort of ripple effect on uh, social media and the fact that they, mm. that coverage is, is is picked up and um, carried and carried on other media. Um, so I don't know. I mean, okay. I think. There's a good, there's a good chance that they, that they might have had, had an effect on it. But I think if, if we all go to hell in a handbasket because mm. we don't get a deal, then people mm. will be like, one, you know, history may not, may not judge them, uh, the editors of those papers very kindly. Okay. So uh, if, if, if we go into a golden, golden new era of uh, Great mm. British, you know, trading mm. prosperity, then you know, fair play to them. And that's true. I just just on on Geordie Gregg then. There's lot, lots of the coverage has been made. The fact that is uh, Geordie Gregg is a, a Remainer or a staunch Remainer, who I keep reading, which obviously is odds at the the pro Brexit stance of the Daily Mail. So I mean, how does this resolve itself? What's the likely outcome? Will the the Daily Mail's editorial line, its view on Brexit, stay the same, or do you think it will change then? Well, I don't think it will change. The comment pages aren't going to change overnight. Um, Guess the leader columns are because Geordie's going to have a big hand in those, and certainly you know the choice of editorial coverage has got to change, hasn't it? It's just not we're not going to see the sort of um, enemies of the people type front pages under Geordie Gree, are we? Because uh, he's got mm. a different, completely different worldview, and if editing means anything, it means it's, you get to choose what goes on what goes on the front page. So I think we're you know we're definitely going to see a very different Daily Mail, which is going to be um, you know big change to the sort of national conversation. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, last question. I mean, on the Mail on Sunday, he was editor of the, um, the Evening Standard, wasn't he? In the Mail on Sunday, was he seen as as doing a a good job on on both papers then as editor? Yeah, I mean, I think you know he's um, he, did, he, he did did well at the Evening Standard. Um, sort of led it through to profitability, I think, which was quite amazing. Considering uh, it lost money for so many years. Uh, take it free, get, get the quality up. And I think at the Mail on Sunday, I don't think there's been um, dramatic changes there, but he certainly uh, kept, kept the standard up at the Mail on Sunday. Um, had some um, some good uh, scoops there. Mm. And I guess he's um, shown his independence of mind, the fact that he uh, uh, supported the EU gang, you know, mm. Okay, all right, that's fantastic. All right, great. Thank you very much, Dominic. That's great. Okay, cheers, John. Thanks. Okay, so thanks for um, joining me on the uh, podcast, Mark. So by, by day, you're the um, marketing director at Direct Land, but uh, today uh, you're talking about your new, your new gig at the Advertising Association, so you're going to be the new chair of its uh, Front Foot initiative. So, uh, well, basically, first up, what is exactly the Front Foot initiative? So it's, it's sort of a campaign that runs from within the Advertising Association. Um, and it's sort of a campaign for advertising in itself. Uh, so that, that's a network of advertising media owners and agencies, but sort of coming together to represent advertisers' voice into the world. And, and, and very specifically to try and improve the sort of the, the, the trust around advertising, um, because that, that is uh, clearly not 
not there enough at the moment. Okay, so yeah, I mean, it said in the press release it talked uh, about public trust in advertising. So, I mean, do you think it's at a particular low point at the moment? And, and if so, you know, what, what are the main reasons why that's so? Well, actually, I mean, I, I think uh, there's two important things to say. One, one is that, you know, advertising as a whole uh, is, uh, is a good thing. It helps consumers to make decisions. You know, I, I believe in the good of advertising. Uh, and marketing and advertising is ultimately meeting consumers' needs. So, um, you know... <clears throat> That's why I would take this role is because that's my fundamental belief. I mean, in, I mean, in truth, advertising's not in a bad place. I mean, at a couple of levels. I mean, one is is the you know at a government level, it's recognised the contribution that it makes. Mm. Um, you know, there's the, the statistics that we would use is that for every pound spent, there's six pounds of GDP. It delivers more than 120 billion a year in total. It's nearly a million jobs across the length and breadth of the UK and perhaps counter to the mm. assumption half of those are outside of London. So the sort of the business case for advertising is positive. And actually the advertising industry is in growth uh, in terms of 4.2% uh, up revenue up in 2018. Um, and that's sort of expected to continue. So on the face of it, it's all okay. But yes, there is this trust issue. Now, again, it's worth saying that uh, according to various sort of trust measures, it's improved. Yeah. Um, so actually it's... A, the highest 61 percent according to Edelman so it's the highest level since 2012 um, and, and that compares to sort of uh, you know trusting government at 36 percent so it's not all bad right okay but, a, but, but fundamentally what's been lost from this conversation is that advertising pays for the internet advertising pays mm. for content but the, the model of how this all this sort of consumer benefit is created is mm. just it's just not understood mm. um, and instead, what comes to the fore are conversations like ad blocking and brand safety and uh, people not just sort of understanding the, the good that is in the, the value of advertising uh, in terms of the, the model that pays for the internet, but also the good and responsible messages of advertising as well. Mm. Do, you think there's a, do you think the public has got a, a broader distrust of institutions, um, whether it be companies or government, whether it's over, I guess, tax evasion, sweatshops, um, dodgy emissions testing and do you think advertising sort of caught up in all that too it's looped together and people have a distrust for advertisers and, and they just see, see them as one as, as the as part of these big uh, institutions which they dis distrust well i mean a couple of things around that actually so according to edelman the uk is the least trusting nation that they record mm. uh, which is sort of somewhat sobering but i guess you know that whether we're discerning or pessimistic as a nation i don't know but we, we are on on the scale of things relatively um uh, low trusting of uh, of the world mm. um, yeah. so, so I think that that's, that's the thing uh, I, I think probably to some extent advertising ebbs and flows with that cycle um, one thing which has changed obviously is that there's a lot more sort of you know public airing when advertisers get it wrong in terms of social media it's much more immediate it's much more pointy um, but, it, but it's interesting that at this moment in time if trust in institutions in general is falling a bit but trust in advertising is increasing it shows that it's not just a sort of copy paste read across mm. um, and that sort of advertising has its own presence in the world um, I mean and of course advertising creates conversation and it does mm. ultimately you know it, it works it helps people to make decisions that they might not otherwise have made so I, mean, I think you have to sort of see it as a standalone but notwithstanding the context of UK as you know as a trusting or non-trusting group of people and do you think millennials have a, a, a more of a natural distrust of advertising than a, an older demographic? And if so, how can you how can you resolve that then? 
Well, I mean, I think this is a key point. Actually, the obvious answer is yes. So the the propensity to have ad blocking increases sort of in reverse with age. Um, so, you know, the uh, inverse mirror of. Uh, and, you know, the, I, I read something in Forbes which says that um, many, many millennials hate ads, you know, and that's the actual words they use. Um, but then again, they want to buy from brands which have a strong reputation. So it's almost you can't really have it both ways. So 73% of millennials said that a strong reputation is really important when uh, looking to buy things. Um, uh, and they also want 50% so they want to go to a brand leader. Well, of course, you know, the, the most obvious way to demonstrate that this is a brand has a strong reputation and is a leader is through its advertising. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a slight contradiction there. And, and so I, I suppose one of the things I'm quite passionate about is if more people understood more about what's the sort of the intent and purpose and responsibilities of advertisers, uh, and, and for sure advertisers can help themselves in that regard, then kind of it's a win-win. Everyone's a bit better mm -hmm. off in the world. Um, and, and if, you know, if the UK is becoming even more less trusting over time, then maybe advertising can stand aside as something which is, which is actually a really big positive in our, in our economy and in our society. Okay, so you've identified that there is a trust issue, but as you say, advertising is or can be a force for good. So, I mean, in terms of the, the role at front for, I mean, what, what, what are you going to do about restoring that, the, this trust then? Well, I mean, I guess it'd be arrogant of me to be sort of too uh, definitive because I haven't even started and don't start for a couple of months and there's a very adequate chair in there right now. And I think um, the Advertising Association, uh, we're essentially forming a new board for this uh, this committee. But, um, you know, I would, I would hope that I'd be able to bring um, the, the right conversations through in terms of how, how do we show up as a group of advertisers and you know the job description I suppose for the advertisers association as a whole is to promote the roles and the rights and the responsibilities of advertising um, and I think it, within front foot you know I, I, it's a component part of that but specifically around this trust issue and I, and I can imagine that we actually do a bit more campaigning about that it's you know how many people do literally understand that the internet would not function without advertising uh, now, obviously, you know, there's a there's a way to make that relevant um, and and credible and believable. But you know, I'm I'm quite for campaigning about this. Uh, my my metaphor would be: I've worked in insurance for six years, and when I joined, you know, trust was at an all time low mm. post financial crisis. The, the whole insurance industry had kind of forgotten what it was about because it was only talking about price for a couple of decades and completely sort of missed the mark in terms of actually. It's all very well buying something that's cheap but doesn't work, but you need it to really work in your moment of need. You know, we need to fix things. That's what insurance is. That's what it does. And so with the Derek Lyons story, we obviously went, you know, really doubled down on that thought of fixing. We dramatised it with Winston Wolfe, sure. character from Pulp Fiction, and it's been incredibly effective. And lo and behold, in the last three years, we have seen the trust in the insurance industry itself improve dramatically. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not for one moment saying that's only about direct line, but I do believe we've played a role in that. And so, you know, good advertising can improve trust. Um, it's sort of job number one, um, because people will not buy things that they do not trust. Right, okay, that, that's great, Matt. I'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Okay, so thanks very much uh, for joining me, Steve. So Amazon has, has bagged itself the right to exclusively live stream 20 uh, Premier League matches from 99, uh, 2019 in the UK for three years. First up, is it a big surprise that Amazon has got these rights? No, I don't think it is. I think rumours have been circulating for quite a while. Um, 
around, particularly in Premier League rights. And I think when all the packages didn't sell, right. then I think you know that almost fueled the fire a little bit more. And there were more and more rumours. Um, certainly, that new platforms were going to consider these rights. Obviously, there's been a very big ticket associated with them. They're not they're not the cheapest rights around. But mm. also, I think they're, they you've seen. Amazon, Facebook, and the other sort of over-the-top operators, um, but particularly Amazon, buying up some cheaper rights recently to mm-hmm. really, I think, almost run it as a pilot study and test out um, production values and how they can create the sub- subscription service and their whole um, operations around it. You know, particularly they've done things around the um, ATP Tour, for yeah. example, the US Open Tennis. So it hasn't surprised me. I think the level that they've come in is maybe the one shock but you know we know amazon and the scale of their business is pretty extraordinary so living mm. into sport at this scale um it's uh, it's sort of live and, and and away we go and this is the start of i think some particularly game-changing moments we're going to see in the broadcast industry so j- just to be clear the, the premier league failed to sell these rights originally then did they was, was it expected that bt and sky would pick them up was it or well i think there's been a reset in the you know, you're obviously talking about global rights and, mm. uh, and domestic rights is very, very different um, to, to sort of marketing strands, different packages that they put out there. Um, it's often too much focus delivered just uh, all around and news around the domestic rights, which have obviously been carved up between mm-hmm. um, Sky and BT, um, and some of the rights hadn't sold. So, you know, the fees have come down and the revenues come down slightly on that, but that's, again, just a bit of a set in the market because of more players in there um, okay. you know and that's the first time those numbers have actually turned uh, downwardly uh, for, for quite a while but I think it's a good it was always going to be a reset the last round of, of rights from broadcast particularly in, in the UK market was really toppy um, and I think then there, there have been packages that have been left over haven't sold but it's yeah. not like the, it's not, it wasn't like a fire sale you know with the um, they've done very well to get them and I think of the, the marketing they've got off the back of the announcement as well has been pretty strong that shows that Premier League are looking at new operators and so I think it, it really sets it up incredibly nicely for the yeah. next round when it comes back again in three years time and we don't we don't know who Amazon who else bid then we don't know if people like Apple or Facebook and Netflix but is it fair to say that those companies some have dipped the toes in more than others but they've not fully worked out how to monetize their sports content yet then Possibly, but I mean, they know how to monetize other content. You look at Apple and their music services, they know how to monetize that. Mm-hmm. Look at their, their uh, film and uh, movie service, you know. They're, they're well versed at it. You know, Amazon is the one that's been dipping its toe in the water and actually going out and buying live rights, um, as I said, with ATP Tour and US Open Tennis. I mean, the numbers are pretty poor and pretty small. You know, I don't think Sky would have been too upset losing. Um, some of the US Open rights. In fact, I'm sure they would have handed them over from a tennis perspective. From what I understand, the numbers have been mm. really, really tiny. So, you know, far too high a rights fee for actually um, a really small audience figure. So uh, that has allowed Amazon to come into the market and certainly test test the water in these things. And that's what hasn't surprised me. They're using it and get, getting a feel for how they can roll out a subscription model, probably taking a sample yeah. If you like, from what they're doing around tennis, and then seeing how they can dial that up massively. When I mean, you're you're only talking about twenty games in this mm. Amazon package, it's not sure. a lot. Um, and and the number again that they paid for those twenty games is 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 frightening. But you know, Prime Video and their subscription model is actually really good. It's getting good traction. From what I hear around their film properties, right. so 
they've, they've got all that model they've got the build around it it's now them moving into live I think it's quite it's the sort of the game changing all of this rather than just you know preloaded uh, pre-recorded content so people just to be clear so um prime uh, amazon prime video subscribers will be able to see this i think at, at no extra cost but i guess if you you don't have that and you're already maybe subscribed to sky and bt then it's an extra subscription service for you isn't it so it's more expensive yeah, for the that's fans. happening that's happening everywhere john i mean i think the the, the issue that is often overlooked here is you know are the fans and the who are ultimately the, the subscribers been treated well and you know money talks unfortunately in a lot of these things um and, and if money starts to come first uh without you know the view of what fans will do and how they'll react and whether they're going to uptake on a lot of these you know another subscription and another you know something you know number mm. coming out of their pay packet Mm. Um, each month, you know, are they actually going to really see that through, or are these games, these twenty games that Amazon have got, are they going to become quite missable? Because, yeah. quite frankly, a lot of the games in those packages are missable. Yeah. Um, and we've seen some of the figures coming around Premier League of, of some of the midweek games, and this is not disparaging some of the teams, but the teams with lower fan bases, the, the numbers are pretty poor, and and the games are all over the place at totally different times so they can be missable and you're not broken hearted if you do miss them okay. so you know you're talking about 20, 20 games here is not a lot mm. I think it's created a noise I do believe that they'll take it as the 20 games see what, how it goes test the water on it as mm. another sort of another way to do a pilot study for them to come back into the market when the, when the big packages come back in in a couple of years time so you think it's a bit early to suggest that you know one day uh, Amazon or one of their other online rivals could actually, you know, replace Sky or BT or, or something like that. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's unrealistic to think that. No, I mean, you know, the game is changing so much, and, and obviously the game is starting to change. This is only the Premier League. We're talking about look at the US marketing, uh, so US television rights. Mm. Um, you know, all sorts of different sports being bought up here, there, and everywhere, particularly using the over-the-top models. So, new players are going to come in. Is it, it's you know the the winners here are going to be the rights holders of the Premier Leagues of the world, but they have to at the same time go and look to other um, other platforms because actually the bigger broad you know almost more I wouldn't say traditional but but the the main broadcasters who've been the mainstay of um, buying these rights for, for for quite a long time are suddenly realising hold on a minute we're really overpaying for these. Mm. So there has been a little reset, um, but with new players coming in, it might bring the market back up again. Okay, fantastic. Hello, and now I am joined by uh, Sue uh, Frogley. Thanks very much for, for joining me, Sue. So last week on the podcast, we had uh, Philip Thomas, who's one of the bosses at Can Lion, which obviously uh, Can begins later this month. So publicists made the decision um, last year that you won't be attending this year. Obviously, there have been some a few big changes to the festival, such as shortening the number of days of the festival. I think the, the upshot is it's going to make it cheap, cheaper for uh, attendees. Are you happy with the changes that have been made? Hi, John. Great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, really happy. I think they've really thought about it. And I don't think we should just assume publicists were the catalyst. You know, it wasn't just can that we stopped going to. It was everything. So, um, but I think shortening it, they've made some really good changes they've thought about it and also they've listened to everybody as well so i think what they're doing is a really good thing okay so you mentioned it was like a, a you've got a year-long ban on trade shows but you did have an issue with can about how expensive it had become did you 
We had an issue with the format okay. um, and we had raised that with them. So not can per se, but um, uh, just it had got a little bit expensive, but they've really addressed that. Okay, so the likelihood is that you'll be back next year and you'll be back, I don't, you know, for the foreseeable future now. We will definitely be back next year. Um, never predict more than a year out, <laughs> but yes, we'll, we'll be back. Okay, obviously Publicist has got its own event for the last few years, uh, VivaTech, uh, which got a lot of press coverage this year. So did you, well first up, did you go this year? I did, second time. It was absolutely fantastic. Okay, so tell us a bit about that, because there, the, there was a bit of an update on the uh, AI platform. Marcel, was, was, was that the big showpiece event at, the, uh, at VivaTech this year then? No, the unveiling of Marcel was at our internal conference, okay. um, and then uh, VivaTech, and how I describe it to people, it's like, the, it's like CES. So when you walk in, it's a huge exhibition of startups and mm -hmm. amazing companies. So Marcel was uh, unveiled at VivaTech, but, but actually how we launched it was to our uh, top 300 people in the company that morning uh, and it was live uh, a live demonstration of it actually working and absolutely brilliant and how does in a nutshell I tried to have a look at Marcel before in a nutshell what, what does Marcel do then so it takes us from a holding company to a platform so there will be a platform throughout the whole of the group uh, and everybody will be able to access anything Naturally, we have to take into account client confidentiality and client conflict, uh, but you'll be able to access case studies, people, uh, absolutely full access to 80,000 people. Okay, so if I was to be a cynic, is it, is it not like a, a glorified internal database that lots of companies have, or I guess, being, um, I, guess well, I guess you'd argue it's something completely different and revolutionary? I, w I would, uh, yes. It's, it's, not, it's not just an intranet, it's a, a massive, massive platform that we have invested in and taken the money away from uh, all the awards of the last okay. year. Okay, and, and so it, the likelihood is that publicist employees will log on to this every day, I guess. Do we know when it's going to be up and running then? Or? So it's in beta at the moment. Uh, what I like is the, the timeline's not too ambitious, so we hope to have everybody on it in uh, January 2020. It's opt-in, so the success will okay. be if people choose to use it. So it's not going to be mandatory, which I think will be really interesting. They they will want to use it. Okay, and you're partnering with Microsoft on this then, yeah? That's okay. right, yes. Okay, so just going back to the thing I didn't mention about Cannes this year, there's lots of events about uh, women's empowerment. I think L'Oreal are doing a show about women's empowerment, and there's a group called Women Can are calling for women to wear black, too, as a statement for solidarity and safety. So this is in light of the Time's Up uh, advertising. Um, do you think this is sort of a break, breakthrough moment for, for women's empowerment at the moment? I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting time for women and empowerment, and I think, I think we're coming into the right, the right space and everybody's talking about it. I do think we have to be careful that it shouldn't just become women only. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. A couple of men have come and said, you know, gosh, it's all only about the women. Oh, really? So I think it's fantastic what we're doing. Um, and I think what the IPA has done is great. And I think CAN is great. But I also think there is a responsibility in companies. So I see it as my job is uh, empowerment of women is important in our business, but it's got to be about everything. You know, it's not just women, it's got to be all diversity. Um, and really, uh, for me, meritocracy 
is perfect and that's what it should be. Um, so it's really important, but I think we have to be careful that we don't go too far and okay. maybe make make the men feel a bit left out. So well, that's interesting. So men have come forward, employees of publishers have come forward to talk about what well, they would they'd like to see something along the lines of, of, of male empowerment to them. They haven't, they haven't asked for male empowerment, but they've said, are we, uh, are we going to start ignoring the men? Yeah. And we're absolutely not. So, um, and they've come along to any, any women in uh, uh, publicist initiatives uh, is open to men and women. So, okay. But it's interesting. So, but it's not, I'm still saying it's, it's good to be talking about it. So Publicist Media have got a, a Women in Tech initiative, is that right? That's right, yes. How's, how's, how's that getting along then? Ab- absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we're uh, discovering all sorts of highly specialised, skilled women that are not necessarily in these technical roles and they now see an opportunity to be able to move into them, which is really great. Okay. So uh, I should have said this at the start, belated congratulations on your promotion to Chief Executive Publicist Media, which was in October uh, last year, I think. That's right. Are you, are you enjoying the job? What surprised you most? so far I love it right. I say to people I've got one of the best jobs in London I have the most amazing people we yeah. have the most amazing clients there's a fabulous vision from publicist group and for publicist media um, and what surprised me the most I think publicist has some of the best kept secrets I think we've got some hidden gems and um, I was really surprised to discover them Okay, uh, so I mean, how do you divvy up, how do you divvy up your time then? Are you different uh, media agencies during the week, or are you? I mean, or obviously you're in uh, Farringdon today, but do, do, I mean, do you get about to different offices during the week, or? Yep, I do uh, fifteen thousand steps a day. Okay, because <laughs> right. I have five. That sounds good. I have five offices. I have five offices, so um, there's no there's no set pattern. For my first six months. I wanted people to be uh, to see me and have visibility. So I've been around each office, just talking to everybody, lis- listening to them, um, and that's why I haven't done many of things like this because I wanted to make sure I got to know everybody. Um, and as you know, uh, we will be moving to one building, mm. so um, that will uh, take my steps down, um, yeah. and it'll be good for very good for everybody. Okay, so I mean, you mentioned the moving the building. I guess arguably that's the biggest decision that's been made since you become. Uh, chief exec. So all the all the media agencies and attendant businesses are moving to the old uh, BBC studios in, in West London. Yep. And so um, I think in the press release you talked about it being uh, transformational. Can you just um, talk about how it, we've had uh, your chairman on talking about this, but just uh, I think you talked about how it would benefit employees, but can you just talk about how does it benefit clients too? And do you think rival networks... Uh, your rivals will follow suit too with, with similar offerings and move move media agencies into, into one building. So how so for for the staff? I know, I know that that's been covered. So yeah. for them, it's fantastic. Every, everybody in one building. For clients, um, and I was talking to clients on Friday, and they were saying it would just be fantastic for them because our clients come and spend a lot of time in our offices. Um, sometimes we don't even know that clients are sitting here mm. um, and so they feel that they will have access to the whole of publicist media in one building um, so they're they're really keen on that um, sorry did you have another question in that uh, and well just, yeah yeah just how does it benefit uh, employees and too in terms of is uh, I I'm sure your chairman's been on this before but we talked about employees too I mean yeah. well I guess it's um, what we're going to make sure we do is we keep the brand identity. So, so the brand, each brand will still have 
their own space uh, and they will be they will be separate again because of client confidentiality but I think the key thing is our practices which are the specialisms so mm. uh, investment content they are going to be all together at the moment they're in different locations um, and actually having everybody in, in one building will make it just much more efficient for on time and all the staff it's been positive the feedback you've had from staff yeah I think they're very excited to be in one building obviously the first thing anybody does when they hear about a move is they go what does it what does it mean for my journey and how much does it cost me Um, and we are talking to everybody about that but there's great excitement on being in a nice new building it's a you know, it's a fantastic place there and it's, it's coming alive down there. Um, you asked about whether other yes. holding companies would move. Uh, who knows what they will do. So, um, but it's something that we've decided that is right for us. Okay. And you can affirm that in terms of there's going to be no further merging of resources. Though, that, I mean, in terms of personnel, the media agencies will still have their independent management teams and independent profit and loss accounts. And there's going to be no further merger. There's one, so I have one PL, so yeah. Publishers Media UK is one PL, so there's okay. no change to the PLs, okay. but we're retaining, we're retaining the brands uh, at the moment. Okay, right, okay, yeah. So, change in tact, um, we had someone on last week uh, talk about Martin Sorrell's new venture, S4 Capital. Uh, I mean, is that, in terms of, I think I, saw, I read an interview this morning where oh, someone close to the situation was saying because Martin Sorrell's still a, a shareholder in WPP, that his new venture is unlikely to compete directly with um, WPP. So maybe it's something a bit slightly left of field. I mean, is it, in terms of publicists, is this something you're, obviously Martin Sorrell's a big name, so be aware of him, but is, is this something you're... Uh, would see as a, as a competitor? Are you worried about him sort of coming to you and trying to pinch some of your talent or anything like that? No, um, we, we tend not to worry too much about what everybody else is doing. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, just, I, think, I think it's interesting what he's doing, shareholding versus it have very different restrictions versus sure. em, employ, you know, an employment contract. So he won't be, he won't be restricted. He has, he has no restrictions. So um, it's... It's not. I, I find it absolutely fascinating, uh, but it's not something that I really worry about. So, no. okay, okay. And uh, I mean, do you think there's been any fallout? Obviously, WPP recently lost its the HSB HSBC account, and uh, Ford is up for a review. Do you think even his departure? Do you think it's had an, a, a contributory impact on client review in business? And do you think WPP will actually lose business? You know, solely on the fact that he's left, or is it too too far uh, too far up the food chain for it to matter to, to clients? Do you think? I don't. I don't think I can comment on you know okay. what, what their business is or isn't doing. So um, okay. no. Okay. Okay. And, and finally, I know we've only got a very short amount of space because you're very busy today. Just in terms of the. Um, I mean, you mentioned it before about some of the, the challenges of job. I mean, the demands. What have you found the biggest challenge? The biggest demand of a job so far. Time. Time, as in today. And what's <laughs> no, your... no, 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 no. I'm not trying to get rid of you. <laughs> no time. That's, okay. It's 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 a it's you know it's a big it's a it's a big job. Okay. And and finally, what's your relationship like with the publicist CEO? I mean, how often did, would you see him after Sudan? Um, we see him once a quarter. We see him once a quarter. So uh, UK UK's second biggest market. So uh, very important to him. I think it's 
fantastic what he's doing. He's, <laughs> he's very bold, okay. um, which is really great. Uh, and of course, we have Annette King, who is the new um, UK country lead. So she's been here three weeks. So um, great spending time with her. We weren't permitted to see her until uh, her restrictions finished. So she started on the 14th and she's okay. uh, fabulous so far. Okay, right. Okay, so that is fantastic. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you.